This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with author and political veteran Thomas Reston. His recent book is Soul of a Democrat, Seven Core Ideals That Made Our Party and Our Country Great. Reston, a longtime Democratic activist, claims that Democrats have faced defeats at the polls because the party has lost its soul over the past generation. He gives us reasons for the party's demise and gives suggestions on how it can right itself. Tom, soul of a Democrat, uh, first of all, what, what prompted you to write this book? This is a subject I've been worried about for quite some time um, because I think the Democratic Party has sort of lost its way during the past generation. And uh, I was wondering why that was. And more and more, I began to focus on this question of the soul of the Democratic Party. And has the Democratic Party lost its soul? That's the first sentence of my book, and the whole book is a meditation on the soul of the Democratic Party. What it is, where does it come from, have the Democrats lost it, what are the elements of the Democratic uh, soul, and what does the party need in order to get back to its soul. Um, And I believe that the soul of the Democratic Party resides in its core ideals, and there are seven of these core ideals. And each of them came into the party originally because of a struggle the Democrats were having with their opponents. Uh, And so the book tells the stories of those original political struggles. But even more important than that, those political struggles set up a conversation inside the Democratic Party that future generations of Democrats somehow had to come to terms with. And they had to figure out what, what those struggles meant, those original struggles meant for the politics of their own day. And when Democrats sort of lose track of those original conversations or stop having them with each other, the Democratic Party uh, at this point begins to wander and people begin to feel that they can't really rely on the Democrats uh, uh, any longer, that they've sort of lost their own purpose in politics. So this book is really about the purpose of the Democrats for being in politics in the first place and what makes them different from their opponents. It's interesting. You you tell the story and you uh, really get into your seven ideals, but you do it through historical figures. Uh, how, how did you choose to do it that way? 
Well, I think people are more interesting, uh, to me at least, than uh, sometimes just an abstract discussion of abstract ideals. And in fact, all of these ideals uh, grew out of political struggles. And so I tell, for instance, uh, the story of Andrew Jackson uh, uh, fighting the recharter of the Second Bank of the United States uh, in the 1830s. Uh, it was a sort of a life and death political struggle. And it set up this uh, sort of paradigm in the idea, in the mind of the Democrats, that, that politics really was a struggle between insiders and outsiders, and that the Democratic Party would stand for the outsider against the insider who was unfairly trying to block him. And, and this was the way Democrats started uh, to, to think about uh their world and about how to organize the political uh, power struggle, because that's what politics is. It's about uh, organizing the political struggle. It isn't about the details of how you govern the country. Uh, and so this was a basic paradigm set up during the Jacksonian democracy in the 1830s that more than uh, establishing the dominance of the Democratic Party in the first half of the 19th century, it really marked the Democratic Party for all time with its essential purpose in the life of the nation. And that was to advance the interest of the outsider. It's really the beginning of the Democrats' uh, core ideal of, the, uh, of economic justice. 2016 uh, obviously was a disaster for Democrats. Uh, is that what prompted you to write this, or had you already been working on this prior to that? Uh, I had actually been working on it for quite some time, because uh, even before 2016, uh, I thought that this was the essential problem of the Democratic Party, that it had lost its sense of purpose, that it had lost its soul. But um, as, as uh, you know, the, the, the fall of 2016 began to unfold, and I began to believe that the Republicans were going to win the election, uh, in 2016, I redoubled my efforts to finish off the manuscript, uh, and um, and I did. Um, uh, so it, I, I, I think that this book became a sort of roadmap through the mind of the Democratic Party and a meditation on its essential purpose. And that's, I think, what the, what the party really needs these days. The... You know, when I got into politics originally as a young man, uh, I used to ask people, um, why are you a Democrat? And uh, I, the answer I usually got, and I usually got it right away, uh, they would say, the Democrats, they're for the little guy, they're for the common man. And I don't hear that said anymore about the Democratic Party. And uh, I think it's the, the essential problem that the Democrats have today in the wake of 2016. 
Well, obviously, there was an anger factor, and people felt uh, disenfranchised uh, and and disaffected from the system in, in 2016. You you have an interesting uh, aspect to your book, though. You you talk about the that Democrats spend too much time, perhaps, targeting specific targets of votes as opposed to having these broad messages. Could you flesh that out a little bit for our audience? Uh, <clears throat> yes, I, I, I think that this is a, 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 a big problem with the Democrats these days. The Democratic Party has never made sense, really. Uh, it always has had a, a huge number, a vast array of different constituency groups. Uh, and um, when the Democratic Party does its best, it comes up with a public narrative, which, if not aimed at achieving total party unity, unity at least uh, aims to achieve some sort of coherence. But it's all about um, uh, putting together these core ideals in a, a blunt, understandable uh coherent public narrative that can convince uh, uh, the American electorate that the Democrats are uh, a force of ideals uh, that uh, make sense to support. And so uh, these days, the Democratic Party has become sort of a, a mechanical problem uh, party uh, from time to time. It, it's all about how to mobilize our various factions of Latinos or African-Americans or soccer moms or union members or, or, or whoever. And the party has seemed to appeal to these people, almost uh, these separate groups of people, almost in secret with, with very specific policy arguments for each one of them. But it has failed to make an, a, a public argument that uh, could convince each of these separate groups that, uh, that it was in their interest to hang together and that they, they, it, it made sense for them to uh, ally themselves with one another. And uh, it's a very dangerous kind of politics, it seems to me, because it virtually invites uh, the opponents of the Democrats to come along and, and try to cherry-pick uh, one or another group uh, out of the Democratic uh, coalition. And, of course, this is what has happened over the last generation, generation and a half uh, with the white working class. Uh, the Republicans have, uh, perhaps temporarily, uh, but uh, quite emotionally these days, seem to to have uh, been able to to peel that group off uh, and uh, make a an argument to them that they should be Republicans instead of Democrats. It seemed to me, as I was reading your book and, and thinking about it, um, in my lifetime, this uh, I can sort of pinpoint this in the Democratic Party, going back to the 1972 uh, McGovern. Uh, race and and his trouncing at the polls, but that seemed to be uh, at least a, a time where special interests and special segments of the party were highlighted as opposed to a common message. 
Uh, do I have that right? Yeah, I, th- I think it was generally that period of time when the old uh, uh, New Deal uh, uh, coalition of the Democratic Party started to uh, fray. And uh, it, in my view, it really began just right before the time that you mentioned in 1972. In 1968, when Nixon was running against uh, the Democrats, he he made an argument to the uh, Union members uh, in in the North and uh, to Southern Democrats that uh, they should split off from the Democratic Party. He made the he made the argument to the South because of uh, civil rights, because of the Democrats' endorsement of civil rights, and he made an argument to those in the North, uh, the white working class. He said, "Look, the the." The plutocrats are not your enemy. It's it's this fancy elite, of the intellectualized elite of the Democratic Party. They are your, uh, they are your uh, true enemy. Uh, and uh, so the the coalition began to come apart. Uh, and of course, Reagan uh, further uh, increased the breach inside the Democratic Party. Reagan Democrats. So, yeah. uh, yes, the 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 Reagan Democrats. And so the Democrats never really have tried to repair these breaches. They've never come up with a a new narrative to appeal to white Southerners on a non-racial basis, or. Um, uh, you know, sometimes these days, certainly in 2016, one could argue that the Democrats didn't even have a message for the white working class, uh, or sometimes it seemed as, as if they didn't even want to have a message to appeal to them. Let's talk a little bit about labor. Labor was huge in the Democratic Party, uh, certainly in, in the 40s and, and uh, earlier times and even later than that. But the the labor movement has been in decline uh, for about the same period of time that you're talking about the Democrats losing their way. Uh, talk about the correlation between those two. Well, I think it's absolutely true. It's, uh, you know, largely due, I think, to, to the nature of the American economy these days. But it, uh, uh, but it's, been very destructive for the Democratic Party to it's it's part of the reason why Democrats seem to have uh, lost touch with uh, this particular constituency. But, you know, I think it I I think conceivably um, the pendulum might be swinging a little bit now. Uh, You notice in Missouri uh, just recently in the last couple of months, voters there rejected a a right-to-work law, a statewide statewide right-to-work law. And I think there there is this uneasy feeling in the country that, uh, you know, the imbalance of wealth uh, uh, and power has uh, really gotten out of hand, and we need to look for mechanisms to try to to try to stabilize, uh, uh, you know, the, the shares that uh, various different parts of the population are getting in of, of the economic pie. And I think a revived labor union movement might be uh, part of the solution to that. We'll be back 
after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We've looked at uh, the, the 2016 uh, election and the appeal of uh, Trump to the, the working class and to, to people across the country. Uh, the Democrats seemed to self-destruct during that period, I mean, using terms like deplorables, uh, which sort of <laughs> fed into the 1968 uh, uh, campaign that you were talking about where Spiro Agnew was out talking about defeat intellectual snobs. Uh, and it, it seemed like it was almost uh, suicidal more than it was a Republican uh, victory. Well, um, I, I think that the the problems of the Democratic Party far predate the 2016 election or okay. the or the performance of any one candidate. But I but but the particular incident that that you talk about uh, there when Hillary Clinton was talking about uh, uh, deplorables inside the Donald Trump uh, cohort of supporters, I, you know, to me that was almost an act of political sacrilege on her part because it uh, showed. Uh, sort of uh, a party that had lost its way and was not focusing on its essential purpose in politics anymore. You know, I was sitting next to a lady once at uh, lunch about six months ago, and she said to me when she was talking about some of the Trump supporters, she said, you know, I don't want their values in my party. And uh, I just disagree with uh uh, what she said very, very profoundly. I think that there are different ways to appeal uh, to people. You can appeal to um, uh, you can appeal to people the way Donald Trump appeals to them, or you can remember that the white working class was the heart of the New Deal coalition that Franklin Roosevelt uh, put together, and he appealed to them based on their interests and based on their fundamental values as American citizens and their belief in the promise of America. 
And uh, I think the Democrats, I think that's the way for the Democrats to get back to um, or, or to 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 get these people back into the Democratic Party based on their interests, but perhaps even more so based on their fundamental values. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are lots and lots of sort of blasted out communities in this country uh, who have lost their economic base. And uh, those communities and those individuals in those communities, they should be classic Democratic supporters. And the Democratic Party should feel that it is part of its soul and perhaps the major part of its soul to find ways to stick up for uh to stick up for those people and to help them when they're in trouble. It seems like the term liberal has vanished from our vocabulary and has been substituted by the word progressive, and certainly there was a struggle leading up to 2016 between the Bernie Sanders wing of the party uh, and the Hillary Clinton sort of more establishment wing of the party. Since that time, we've seen some uh, progressives uh, unseat Democratic uh, established politicians. This struggle within the party between the more established area and progressives, is this part of the struggle for the soul? Uh, how would you describe that? I think that's uh, I think that's exactly what it is. What is going on? I think you have a power struggle in the Democratic Party, a profound power struggle now for the first time in a generation or two. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that it is a struggle over the soul of the Democratic Party. And I think that regardless of, of which side you're on in these these various fights among the, the the various factions of the party, it is very important to understand where these uh, uh, where how these fights originated. It's something much more than political ambition, and it's something much more than the details of policies. These are different intellectual traditions in the parties uh, that are come, rubbing up against each other and clashing against each other now. And the whole, um, uh, the whole political problem of the Democrats should be to figure out how to compose these internal contradictions of ideals inside the Democratic Party. And I don't think it's an impossible uh, situation. And in fact, uh, I think uh, I'm quite optimistic that the Democrats should be able to uh, compose these differences. But the way to do it is to embrace our contradictions, not to try to smooth them out or cover them up or suppress the contradictions, but to return to the essential political psychology of the Democratic Party which is um, a vast and eclectic array of different kinds of people and different kinds of ideals uh, and, and fundamental beliefs about politics. So, uh, you know, the book argues uh, for a return to the authentic traditions of the Democratic Party as a broad and fractious party, 
a party that embraces its own internal contradictions instead of trying to smother them. The kind of uh, party that Adlai Stevenson, who was the great uh, and lyrical herald of the post-war resurgence of the progressives in the Democratic Party, spoke for when he talked to the Democrats in 1952 at their convention, and he said that uh, at that time, uh, he said, uh, we want no shackles on the mind or spirit, no rigid patterns of thought, no iron conformity. We want only the faith and conviction that triumph in a free and fair context, uh, contest. And um, so that's what I think we we have to be uh, uh, we have to be confident about as Democrats. We have to encourage this uh, clash of ideals, and uh, I think these ideals can be composed for, uh, partly because uh, I, I think the essential clash is between one faction, which is very purpose driven, and that's the sort of uh the Sanders faction uh, and it's the fight for the outsider and the fight for economic justice and then the the establishment side of the party is really uh, more about the how-tos of governing and how to come up with the policies to accomplish the purposes that I I think the Sanders people uh want to accomplish and the insurgents want to accomplish so i think there's a marriage to be made between the two uh, biggest uh factions of the party now i want to go back to the book uh, as you did and there's one area that you can enlighten me a little bit i believe and that is you have one of your ideals number three and it's in chapter three of your book about secular altruism. Uh, talk about that term, and you used William Jennings Bryan as the uh, example of, of that to, to lead off the chapter. Talk about what that is. You know, the, the Democrats have a long, long history uh, in, in, in the story of America, and uh, the principal characteristic of the Democratic Party is political irony. The, <laughs> the, the, the party is filled with all kinds of uh, fundamental ironies in its uh, past, and, and here is one of the main ones. Um, the uh, appearance of William Jennings Bryan in 1896 uh, was a big, big turning point in the history of the Democratic Party, probably the most important turning point of, of any other in the whole history of the Democratic Party, because it was William Jennings Bryan uh, with his social gospel, with his idea that God's work must truly be our own uh, in, in the world, um, that that we should try to help the the lowly and the outcast and and the damned. It's it's our Christian duty to do it. Uh, he brought into the Democratic Party not for the first time, but he put it front and center. This idea that uh, it's our duty to help people in trouble, 
And uh, so he is the progenitor of uh, today's Democrats who believe that they are Democrats because of their religious faith. But he is also, ironically, the progenitor of the dominant faction in the Democratic Party now, uh, who are completely secular, uh, who are very uneasy with any talk about religion in the public square. Uh, but um, these are people, the, the, the evangelical Democrats or Democrats who, who are Democrats because of their political faith, uh, these are people that the Democratic Party has ignored for a generation and a half now, or, or maybe a generation. And it, it, this is an ironic because for most of its history, the Democratic Party has been quite close to the organized church or organized religion. And it's only in the last generation that there has been this splitting off so that in 2016, I think uh, the figures are that only 18% of white evangelicals uh, voted for the Democrats. There is no particular reason why the Democratic Party should not uh, be able successfully to come up with appeals for white evangelicals that uh, comport with the, the basic philosophy of the party. The Democrats get uh, heavy majorities of black and Latino evangelicals. It's only among the white evangelicals that they seem to stumble. One last area before we end, and that is 2018, uh, coming up here just in a, a few weeks, actually, uh, 2020. Uh, Donald Trump is the lightning rod. Uh, he obviously is the focus of attention, uh, the focus of almost all news. Uh, is it a successful strategy for the Democrats to run against Donald Trump and still have this mishmash of a message? Or do you believe that it's imperative that the, they get their message down and not run just against Donald Trump? I think they really have to get their message down. I think that uh, they are playing catch-up to Donald Trump. I think they, are, they have returned uh, to the same strategy that brought them defeat in 2016 they, uh, because they have developed this monomania about Donald Trump. It's an easy way to unify the Democratic Party because there are very few Democrats who like Donald Trump. Uh, and, you know, in certain uh, congressional districts uh, and in certain races this fall, it's, it's going to work because uh, you've got the, uh, the base of the party, which is truly angry about the president. But uh, after these races are over, then the real struggle over the soul of the party on a national basis is going to begin. And I do not believe that it will be sufficient for the Democratic Party merely to argue against the enormities of uh, Donald Trump uh, in order to see itself through. I think it's quite conceivable that he may win the, the next election if he, if he stands for re-election or if he's still president. 
uh, unless the Democratic Party can come up with this overall uh, public narrative of why uh, uh, American citizens should restore their trust in the Democrats. Uh, and at the moment, I must say, I don't find enough attention being uh, placed on this uh, on, on this uh, problem of trying to come up with the essential message of the Democratic Party. And I don't think it can be a message about the details of policies. I think it has to be blunt American idealism, and I think it needs to be based in those precise ideals that the Democratic Party first introduced to the American conversation and into the meaning of the United States of America and the meaning of, of the Democrats' own political party. The book is Soul of a Democrat, The Seven Core Ideals That Made Our Party and Our Country Great, published by All Points Books. The author, Thomas B. Reston. Tom, thank you so much for talking with us. I, I hope that we can chat again maybe after the 2018 election and sort of do a postmortem vis-a-vis uh, -vis your book. I'd very much like to do that because I think the, the there will be sort of a um, more of a focus on these uh, these particular problems after the election is over with and moving toward 2020. I, I, I would very much like to talk again. Thank you, and we will chat in the future. Great. Thanks a lot. Today, we've been talking with Democratic activist and author Thomas Reston about his new book, Soul of a Democrat, Seven Core Ideals That Made Our Party and Our Country Great. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. WOUB Public Media has launched a brand new podcast called Lifespan. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system. Each show contains stories bound by a common theme, a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma. Subscribe to Lifespan at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or at the NPR Podcast Directory.